obsessing over things that could potentially hurt them. If I heard a plane go over the head, I would think that plane is going to fall from the sky. Anyone in a delivery uniform was actually not a UPS delivery guy or, or a postman. It was a uh, serial killer in a stolen uniform. You know, I started to not make sense at all. And the babies were getting healthier and healthier. And I was seeming to become more and more paranoid, more and more delusional about my surroundings and the reality. You're listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast where experts share experiences and the latest thinking on mental health and psychology. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Gabe Howard, and calling into the show today, we have Sarah Winter. Sarah is most recognized for her role as Kate Warner on the hit series 24 and has most recently executive produced A Mouthful of Air starring Amanda Seyfried, which is now streaming. Sarah resides in New York City with her three boys. Sarah, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me, Gabe. I am very happy to be here. I'm glad to have you here. You have spoken about having postpartum psychosis after the birth of your twins, which was your second delivery. Now, before we delve into that, how did you feel after the birth of your first child? The birth of my first child was 100% blissful, euphoric. He was a much, much wanted baby. I was considered older as, as a mother. I was, I was 37 when my son was born. I had the typical sleep deprivation and adjusting to having a baby and, and nursing and, and those sorts of things. He was an IVF baby. I had struggled with infertility and he felt like a miracle to me. I didn't have any depression at all and I was in a complete state of, of euphoria. And now we move into your second pregnancy and your second delivery. What were the differences that you began to notice after the birth of your twins? The biggest difference, they weren't premature, but it's called preterm. So they're born six weeks early, which, which is pretty um, normal with twins. I delivered them naturally. I was very anxious about a C-section. I was anxious. We were living outside of New York City in Westchester. So delivery would have meant 45-minute drive. I was worried during the winter months that I would be stuck in a snowstorm. I, I started not sleeping toward the end of my pregnancy. And I'm the kind of person my sleep is essential to my feeling good and healthy. And, and I've learned uh, it's essential to my mental health. You know, sleep is, is so important. Uh, so I wasn't sleeping toward the end of it. And I was having a lot of discomfort. I couldn't sleep on my back. You're not supposed to. Obviously, I couldn't sleep on my stomach because I was pregnant with twins. I was huge. And I couldn't sleep on my sides because I was having sciatica nerve pain in my legs. So I... I sort of began the whole process already exhausted and thankfully the delivery went quite smoothly. They were born and everything, you know, 10 toes each, 10 fingers each, and they were whisked off to the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. And I was told that they would have to stay there for, could be a day, it could be two days, it could be several weeks. I was prepared for that. But the thing about natural delivery as opposed to a C-section is you get kicked out of the hospital sort of 36 hours later. So I was sent back home to where we were living in Westchester and having to commute into the city for a couple of weeks to see the babies. You know, I, I had my, my three and a half year old at home. I was sort of pumping milk through the night. I was having to bring it in sort of in a cooler in the morning. 
And the NICU, any NICU parent will tell you, can be a very stressful place because it's filled with tiny babies. Some are very sick. Some will never leave the NICU. I mean, it's, it's quite intense and there's a lot of beeping, a lot of noises because the babies are hooked up to all kinds of machines and monitors. And, um, but they were there for two weeks and my anxiety just sort of increased in those two weeks. The better they got, the worse I became and the more worried I became. And, you know, you have to sort of remember, Gabe, this was pre-COVID, you know, Purell and hand sanitizer and the emphasis of germs being so dangerous for little babies really sort of got into my head. So when I brought them home, you know, after two weeks in the NICU, I thought I could cure the euphoria because they were out of the hospital all my children wanted one roof I could finally sleep and everything would be great and and it didn't it didn't the sun did not come out things did not go back to normal things started to get very bad for me and um I just didn't realize it was in my head rather I just thought it was external issues I didn't I didn't think for a second that what I was feeling was you know my brain was starting to fail me and I was starting to become manic and this idea of postpartum depression didn't even occur to me because in 2011, when my twins were born, I, I thought postpartum depression was included the desire to self-harm and hurt your babies, hurting or even killing your babies. And I didn't have any of those feelings. I wanted to protect them. So it didn't occur to me that what I might be experiencing was on any spectrum of postpartum and especially not postpartum with psychosis. Now, according to the Mayo Clinic, postpartum psychosis is defined as a rare condition that typically develops within the first week after delivery. The signs and symptoms are severe and may include confusion and disorientation, obsessive thoughts about your baby, a desire to harm your baby, hallucination and delusions, sleep disturbances, excessive energy and agitation, and paranoia. And I should say and and or paranoia, you, you don't need to have all of them to be diagnosed with postpartum psychosis. Sarah, what was your experience with postpartum psychosis? The experience sort of, it crept up on me. Definitely disorientation was, was a big thing. I started to, all of a sudden my phone wasn't making sense. I had a Blackberry at the time and I felt like someone had changed the language settings or the keyboard. Like I couldn't, couldn't type on it. and. I couldn't remember basic things like where the coffee was or how do I make a sandwich and why is the kitchen island in my way? And I was spending less and less time enjoying my babies and my three-year-old. I was spending more time obsessing over things that could potentially hurt them. You know, I became obsessed with raccoons, which sounds ridiculous, but raccoons were attacking our outside garbage cans, our trash bins. And I had seen on the news at some point that ingesting raccoon feces can cause brain damage. And I started to think, oh my God, what if someone steps in some raccoon feces, walks it into the house, my three-year-old drops a toy, picks it up, the raccoon feces is on the toy, he puts it in his mouth, then he kisses the babies. They're all going to get brain damage and, and we will all die. And I started seeing in my head the germs. I started imagining the germs walking to my home. So I went from asking people to take their shoes off, which seemed reasonable, to actually wearing booties, to wearing masks, to wearing hairnets. 
I started ordering scrubs for everybody in all different sizes. I then added the Cloroxing of phones and bags and, you know, friends of mine and would sort of laugh, you know, they're NICU babies, so Sarah's a little paranoid about germs. But in my mind, I felt like every little germ that, that got into the house, ha- you know, life is full of germs, but I, I felt like every germ that entered my home could kill my children. I also, there was a tree leaning up against, or it appeared to lean or sort of sway toward the home. And I thought that tree has to go because that tree will fall on the house and it will crush us all. And then I started to, if I heard a plane go over the head, I would think that plane is going to fall from the sky and, and crush the home. Uh, I started to think anyone in a delivery uniform was actually not a UPS delivery guy or, or a postman. It was a uh, serial killer in a stolen uniform. Every car was you know, driven by a drunk driver. Every, like I catastrophized every single little thing in my home and, and outside of the home. So I became more and more isolated and I wouldn't let them go out. And I remember, you know, my former husband, I remember saying to him, we lived in a very small town. It's actually called a village. And I, I remember saying to him, we have to move. We have to move. This place is too big and it's too dangerous. And he said, Sarah, we, we live in a town of 5,000 people. It doesn't get much smaller. And I just said, no, it's too busy. There's too many people. It's too much traffic. There's too much. So I, you know, I started to not make sense at all to the people around me and it started to frustrate them because the babies were getting healthier and healthier and I was seeming to become more and more paranoid, more and more delusional about my surroundings and the reality. It sounds like at first they realized something was wrong, but they wanted to give you leeway. They they understood, you know, being a new mom and the babies coming from the NICU, but they were sort of hinting that maybe you needed to change course. When did they intercede on you and your your children's behalf to get you the help that you so clearly needed? Right. Uh, it, it did take a little while. Um, I would get very angry and very frustrated. And it seemed like nobody understood all the worries of the things that could happen and all the concerns I had. And it wasn't until my girlfriend, Natalie, sat with me and she said, I, I see you struggling. And I agree, Sarah, any of these things could happen. You know, in life, bad things happen. Bad things happen to good people and strange things do occur. And sometimes planes do fall out of the sky. It likely wouldn't happen. And statistically, these things are unlikely to happen. But you're right. They could happen. And Gabe, when she said that, I, I felt like I had exhaled for the first time in weeks. And I felt like someone understood and I grabbed her and I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I felt like I had an ally. And she started to come over much more frequently. All of a sudden, if ever I sort of mentioned that all the beeping in the house was starting to drive me bonkers, she came over and started to deactivate everything that beeped, which is really hard because with microwaves, refrigerators, everything beeps. A car backing up beeps, our phones beep. She attempted to deactivate all the beeps. If I mentioned that I felt like there might be some flooding, even though we lived on a hill and that there was no possibility of anything flooding, she, she would come over and help me move furniture. I mentioned at one point we might need an inflatable raft. If the rains come, I started to think, you know, all these biblical catastrophic things might happen. And she, uh, humoring is the wrong word, but she, she listened to me. And then she started gingerly sort of suggesting, you know, Sarah, you might this might feel like postpartum depression. I said, no, 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 absolutely not. Absolutely not. Do I have postpartum depression? 
I do not want to hurt my baby. She said, okay, okay. And she backed off. And a couple of other friends I didn't know at the time had spoken with my aunt who was visiting at the time from Australia and they staged an intervention to try and get me uh, some help because I was starting to spiral and not make sense at all. I honestly thought if I could just get a divorce, my husband was being mean to me. He didn't understand. He didn't, I felt like he didn't love the babies as much as I do because he wasn't as worried. He kept saying, everything's fine. Look at the sun. Look at the flowers blooming. Look at the babies are gaining weight. Like, why are you acting so crazy? You know, they staged this intervention. I, I, had, I had two friends standing there, my aunt and our baby nurse, and I knew. I knew immediately why they were there. And I was mad. I was angry that they had conspired. You know, they started to tell me why they'd gathered and that they felt like I needed help. And, you know, once I sort of got past the anger and the disappointment and I felt betrayed and I felt like that everyone was being disloyal, I sort of, I I took a deep breath and I surrendered to the moment. And I was quite relieved that I was going to get help somehow. (laughs) And then they told me they'd actually made an appointment with a psychiatrist and that's where we were headed. Now, ultimately, you were hospitalized and diagnosed with postpartum psychosis. What were those moments like for you? I was quite frightened because I didn't realize postpartum could manifest itself in all these different ways. And it was explained to me that, you know, if you were to break it down, there's three levels of the postpartum spectrum. There's the baby blues, postpartum depression, and then postpartum depression with psychosis, which is what I was diagnosed with. And I, I was shocked, uh, but also relieved that what I had had a name and then I could get treatment. Um, I was frightened when the doctor said I would, you know, need to go on antipsychotic medication because that would have meant that I would stop nursing. So I said, well, I'm not going to do that. I will just tough it out at home. And I tried to do that and I couldn't sustain it, Gabe. I was a wreck and I, I thought, okay. I'll go somewhere for a day or two. And she said, three, how about three tops? And I said, all right, I'll go for three days. I can do that. I'll take my breast pump and I'll, and I'll get some sleep and, you know, I'll look at it as a vacation. I'll look at it as checking into a hotel. And, you know, they found me a, a nice facility that sort of didn't look like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You know, I, I, I didn't want to be in a mental facility. I, I was judging myself. I, I was going by books and movies and, I thought it would be more palatable for me to to sort of be in somewhere nice where I had my own room and, you know, my insurance was going to cover it. And I felt like I could do this as scary as it was to be away from my children and as scary as it was to give up that control. I admitted myself and I wound up there staying there for eight days. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com. Gabe Howard here to tell you about the Inside Bipolar podcast from Healthline Media. 
he does the show with me, Dr. Nicole Washington, a board-certified psychiatrist. That's right. A guy living with bipolar and a psychiatrist team up to discuss living well with bipolar disorder. Listen now on your favorite podcast player or visit psychcentral.com slash IBP to learn more. Subscribe now so you don't miss out. Hi there, I'm Faye McRae, Editor-in-Chief of Psych Central. Whether you're looking for free resources, quizzes, or thought-provoking personal perspectives, Psych Central has what you need to join you on your mental health journey. Psych Central's talented team of award-winning writers, editors, and medical professionals are passionate about creating a safe, inclusive, and trustworthy environment where you feel seen and heard. Visit us now at psychcentral.com. That's psychcentral.com. And we're back discussing postpartum psychosis with actress Sarah Winter. I imagine at some point during the eight days that you were hospitalized that you learned that postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis is more than just, uh, I potentially want to hurt my baby or I'm having feelings of hurting my child. What was that like for you to learn just exactly the spectrum of postpartum depression and psychosis? It scared me. Once I got sleep and once they put me on some medication that helped calm my brain and the mania subsided, I recognized that I got in such a bad way, but I didn't get to the point of wanting to hurt myself or my children. But I had to wonder, how many steps away from that was I? Was that the next step or two? Was that, was that something that it frightened me because my main concern was to protect them and protect myself and my family and keep everyone safe. But I didn't know how my psychosis was going to unravel even more if I didn't get help. And I was very good with making things look normal. I remember before I was hospitalized, I put together a photo shoot. A friend of mine is a professional photographer and I had this beautiful white lacy nightgown. And I thought if I could take these beautiful photographs with me and the babies and and everything could look so soft and perfect and I could look maternal and pretty and, and motherly, then, then it would feel that way. And it didn't feel that way. And, and these photos are gorgeous, but when I look back at them, I was in such a terrible mental state that I realized while I was in the hospital that it was so important for me to just look normal and look grateful because I had gone through a lot to have these babies. I had gone through so much and I also had so much help, Gabe. I had a baby nurse. I had my aunt visiting from Australia. I had girlfriends that helped me, a husband who had a great job and great health insurance. I had great health insurance. I had childcare for my three and a half year old. We lived in a lovely house. And I was, if it weren't for my girlfriends recognizing that I needed a different kind of help, I don't know what would have happened to me. And that frightens me for other people, other people who might feel shouldn't complain. I should be grateful because I've struggled with infertility or I should feel grateful because I have a job or I have health insurance or I'm able to get financial support. So I shouldn't complain or ask for help. We're not supposed to. You know, mums feel this pressure to not only make it look easy and make it look good and, you know, we're, we're told we're super women. So, you know, of course we can do it because we're super women and we get it all done. And even though it might be hard, we get it done. And some of us can't. Some of us just can't get it done. And if it weren't for my girlfriend, who really risked wading into a private family matter, I understand some neighbors, friends, family don't want to 
pry or risk a friendship or get in between a husband and a wife and say, look, dude, your, your wife is struggling and we think she needs help and you're, you're not seeing it. You think she's being a bitch and you think she's being difficult and it's hard on you too, but she needs help and we're going to get it for her. My, my friends risked a messy situation and till the end of my days, I'll be grateful that they did that. So often in mental health advocacy, people say, well, it's not my place to say anything, or I don't want to make the person mad. I, I don't want them to hate me. And the mental health advocacy community message is uh, if you get the person help, even if they're mad at you, you can work it out later, right? You can be forgiven. Right. One of the things I want to touch on is we've talked a lot about how this was your your second delivery, your your twins, and, and you said that your your firstborn was three and a half. What was this like for him? Because that period is such, a, a lot of it is such a blur to me. I was very lucky that my aunt and my nanny and my former husband kept him quite separate from me. And I think they were protecting him from what was going on with me. When I look back at that time and I see pictures, I feel neglectful. I feel guilty. People say kids pick up all kinds of germs from daycare and from nursery school. So he would come home and I would my God, I would strip him. I would strip his clothes, bathe him, brush his teeth. You know, he must have felt like Karen Silkwood being scrubbed down at the nucleus power plant. And I was very nervous about him touching the babies. I was nervous about the the transferring of germs. I don't honestly know for sure how much he remembers. He did, the older he got, become a little resentful of his brothers. And I think that is normal, being an older brother. And all of a sudden, these two babies come along. And what happened to my my mom and my dad and this perfect situation I had, I still think we're figuring that out. 10 years later, I think that's something we work on as a family and it's, he loves them and we're doing well, but I honestly don't know how much that impacted him. I guess we're still navigating that. It sounds like the line of communications remain open for everybody. I'm hearing that you want everybody to openly talk about mental health issues and what happened to you, which I, I think is a, a very, very healthy thing for everybody involved. And unfortunately, it is somewhat unusual. Even people who do get mental health help, they want to sweep it under the rug. Right. Well, I think it's natural to sort of, when you experience something so painful and so, oh, I mean, you, you do want to move forward. You do, you know, I hate to say sweep it under the rug, but you just when you get better, you just want to move forward and you want to sort of forget what had happened. And it took a year for me to sort of write my thoughts down because I was so grateful to my girlfriends for helping me. I wanted them to know that there were things I did remember. And I was so incredibly thankful for the fact that they waded in and risked a friendship, possibly. Even I, having experienced what I did, I, I don't want to sort of put my experience under some other new mother. I don't want to project by saying, are you okay? Are you, can I help you out? Or, you know, you, you definitely, I suffer from that fear myself. I don't want to wade into someone's personal space or especially when it comes to being a new mom and trying to figure it out. And each pregnancy can be different and each experience with a, a new child can be different. It, it has taken me 10 years to recognize that holding on to this sort of secret was really only hurting me. And I'm very open with my friends and family, but sharing it publicly and adding my voice to the chorus of other women and men who, who talk about depression has 
oh my gosh, it's been extraordinary. I've been so ashamed for so long and so embarrassed that this thing happened to me. And speaking out about it has really just freed me from that cloud of not wanting to admit to people that this terrible thing happened. And when you you get into a room and, and you discuss this, it's amazing how many people put their hands up and say, oh my God, that happened to me or my sister, or I remember my mother when I was little and no one talked about it. And there, there were whispers in the kitchen and it's not something men want to talk about because it's icky. And it's so wonderful to be able to talk to you, a male, about this because plenty of men, and I, I've I'm responsible for men not wanting to talk about it because I'm embarrassed to talk about it with men or I have been up until until recently. And it's very healing in a different way to have a male sort of ask these questions and, and talk to me about it because it needs to be, t- I'm raising three sons and I want this language and the discussing and the, and the destigmatizing of mental health and, and not being okay and asking someone else if they're okay. I want to smash that. I want to smash that wall down because I want it to be okay for people to talk about it and and for there not to be any shame because this has just been an incredible cloud, weight lifted, whatever you want to call it. It's a smile on my face. So it's um you can't see it, but it's it's really wonderful. It's wonderful when you when you share and and when you hear other people share and you recognize, my God, me too, me too. That happened to me. That happened to someone else I knew. And you feel more open about sharing your own experiences. So that's all good. And that's been the most amazing thing about this. There's so much opportunity for growth if you understand that just because something is uncomfortable doesn't automatically make it bad. And just because something's uncomfortable doesn't automatically mean that we should avoid it. And I really do think that it raises the level of understanding and knowledge. And if we do our jobs right, if all of us who are currently having these uncomfortable conversations do our jobs right, then your children this will not be an uncomfortable conversation for them. And I kind of agree with you that that motivates me forward that, hey, maybe the next generation won't have to go through some of the things that we went through. Uh, Wouldn't that be wonderful? And that's, yeah, that's the goal. That's what I'm working toward. Sarah, I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to give you an opportunity to speak directly to people who may know somebody who they think is having a postpartum depression or psychosis issue or somebody who's listening that feels that maybe it's them. I would, I mean, just speaking from my own experience, it was so important for someone to see me in those moments. I think asking someone if they're okay, gently, you can be very gentle about it. And they might say they are. And then if you continue to see them not be okay, ask again, ask again. And I think hearing and seeing someone in the moment and not saying things like, well, it'll all get better soon. You know, once they start eating solids or once you stop, or once you say, no, when, when you're in it, you're in that very moment, second to second, moment to moment. It doesn't matter if spring is coming or if the sun is shining. When you're depressed or if you're manic, you're in your head. And if you're seen and heard in those moments, and if you're loved at your ugliest, you're most ashamed. I I, I was an ugly, ashamed. I I beat my ex-husband up. I beat him up one night because I thought it would make me feel better. And his stepmother held me and didn't judge me and told me she loved me while his dad got him out of the room. And I 
was obviously very, 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 very sick and in a really bad way. And I think I would recommend just being as present as you can for someone and not telling them, you know, you can't argue black is white when someone believes something is black or white. I think just saying I see you and I hear you. Those, those are the biggest things for me. Sarah, obviously you're you're a Hollywood actress and you get interviewed by the press 24-7. And have you noticed that members of Hollywood or members of the media still seem to be avoiding maternal mental health conversations? I feel like Hollywood in a way loves an addiction story and and someone who recovers from maybe alcoholism and and understand that's a disease that's so prevalent and, and people talk about it and that's great. But with maternal mental health, there's this squeamish sort of reaction that people are bashful or uncomfortable to wade into. And I'm not sure why that is. I'm not sure why maternal mental health is this touchy, sort of uncomfortable territory. And I hope to, I would like to change that. I do appreciate it when women, you know, especially actresses, women in Hollywood, women with a voice talk about postpartum depression and they're open about it. And I would like to for it to be as, as accepted as a, as a topic of discussion. You know, some famous men have actually reached out to me in private to say, thank you for doing this. My wife, my girlfriend, you know, but they won't say it publicly. And everyone's got their own personal journey and everyone's entitled to their own time and space to deal with things. But I feel like there's something more palatable, let's say, for addiction and recovery than, than maternal mental health. So I'm going to do what I can to... Um, to sort of improve that, hopefully. <laughs> well, I appreciate you getting the message out and, and I hope that you will help create a way for other people to use their platforms to bolster these conversations and make people more comfortable talking about them. That's my hope, for sure. That's definitely my hope. I would love to see that happen. And and look, it's happening. We're doing it right now, okay? We're, we're, we're talking about it. I'm talking with a, a, a guy, which um, uh, is really wonderful and, and just, it makes me so happy to to be able to just keep the conversation going and normalize this. Well, I'm glad to be part of it. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. And a big thank you to all of our listeners as well. My name is Gabe Howard, and I am the author of Mental Illness is an Asshole and Other Observations, as well as an award-winning public speaker who is available for your next event. My book is on Amazon because everything is, or you can grab a signed copy with free show swag or learn more about me by heading over to GabeHoward.com. Please follow or subscribe to the show. It is absolutely free. And hey, do me a favor. Recommend the show to your friends and family, whether it's via social media or good old-fashioned word of mouth. I would consider it a personal favor. I will see everybody next Thursday on Inside Mental Health. You've been listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast from Healthline Media. Have a topic or guest suggestion? Email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. 
One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.